This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for the statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Americans are increasingly dependent on timely, reliable, and accurate weather, water, and climate information for the protection of life and property and enhancement of the nation's economy. In fact, a nationwide survey indicates that weather forecasts generate $35 billion in economic benefits to U.S. households, about six times the cost spent on weather forecasting and research. How does the National Weather Service keep Americans safe by predicting extreme weather events earlier and with more accuracy? What are the strategic priorities of the National Weather Service, and how is it using technology and innovation to meet its mission? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dr. Louis Uccellini, Assistant Administrator for Weather Services at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and Director of the National Weather Service. My co-host today from IBM is Alan Heath. Dr. Uccellini, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Uh, thank you. Alan, welcome, as thank always. Thank you. So, Doctor, could you provide us with a, uh, an overview of the history and mission of the National Weather Service? And more particularly, how does it serve the mission of NOAA and the larger Department of Commerce? So, the, the history of the uh, Weather Service, the National Weather Service, is actually rooted in uh, decisions that were made after the Civil War and the expansion of our population westward um, into areas that were known to be, uh, let's put it this way, more challenging weather-wise. The stories were already out about blizzards and you know uh, tornadoes that people didn't really experience on the East Coast in the early history of the United States. So um, this, uh, the Signal Corps, which is part of the uh, Army, uh, actually got the first um, authorization to provide uh, uh, weather data and indications of what might come next. So that was done within the Signal Corps, and that was established in 1870. By 1891, a decision was made to relocate that function in a National Weather Bureau in the Department of Agriculture. In the 1940-41 timeframe, President Roosevelt um, moved it to the Department of Commerce. Um, as it, still maintaining the mission of providing uh, weather, uh, water, and climate information for the protection of life and property and for the enhancement of the national economy. How is it organized? What's the size of your budget? And, and can you give us a sense of the operational footprint? Yeah, so um, the National Weather Service is fundamentally an operational unit. Um, we 
have to we have the action verb in our mission statement to provide the data for weather, water, and climate, and to provide forecasts to actually predict the future state, which is a very unique aspect of a mission statement for a government agency. We um, really take seriously, and we're passionate about the protection of life and property. Now, the domain space is from Guam and Alaska to Puerto Rico. Uh, our domain space uh, and our service areas range from the Ocean Prediction Center to the Space Weather Prediction Center, so we cover the whole area from the sun to the sea. And one of the reasons we've gained that responsibility, and of course we have w climate, weather, and water, so we have uh, the flood prediction um, aspect of our service as well. The reason I, we've accumulated this is that you have to build an infrastructure, and you have to manage that infrastructure to make that work, not only for accuracy and consistency, but reliability. People expect the data and the forecast to be on time every time. So you have to have an infrastructure for that. And that's an incredible accomplishment in and of itself. We, we deal with billions of observations a day. Uh, we make forecasts uh, out to uh, days, weeks, uh, months in advance, every day from the sun to the sea. You got to have that reliability built in as well. So that's basically the, the you know, captures uh, our daily existence. So speaking of responsibilities, let's transition to your, to your leadership role of NWS. Could you tell us your duties, responsibilities as the director, and maybe in the context of a typical day or a week as the director? Yeah. Um, well, I don't think there was a typical day. So uh, from a leadership perspective, I visit the field. Um, I've been to over 100 of our forecast offices, count up the centers, the local offices, the regional offices. And I emphasize how important, obviously, the uh, field structure is to making uh, to allow us to accomplish our mission um, in what I believe is a very cost-effective manner. We have to ensure that we're all marching forward to attaining the same goal, and we have a very important strategic goal of a built weather-ready nation, that people are ready, responsive, resilient. We're continually reminding the workforce that their job doesn't end with the forecast and warning. That it really involves that connection to decision-making, especially for public safety, we have to ensure that, yes, we want the most accurate and timely forecast and warning, but consistency is, is a very important um, attribute of our products and services because uh, an emergency manager or a public safety official can't be getting three or four different forecasts from the same agency and be expected to make decisions uh, five, four, three days before an event. So we're there to champion the strategic goal, the, the, the plans, the changes that have to be made. But we're also there to manage a $1.1 billion budget and to ensure that it's being spent as planned, uh, that we meet the goals of, of uh, what that money was meant for, and that we're uh, indeed supporting the field structure every day. So every morning at 7.45, we review every system that we're responsible for. Yesterday's weather challenges and how impact-based decision support services were provided. If there are issues, uh, we want to be aware of those. We have our entire leadership team plugged into that 745 uh, meeting. Um, and um, we stay on top of the big projects, uh, whether it's uh, accessing the new satellite data or 
the, uh, the service life extension program of the radar system or everything that impacts the field gets a quick look. And we do that like green, yellow, red. And if something really comes up red, then we know, you know, there's, there's part of our leadership team that really needs to step forward and say, okay, this is how we're addressing it. And then we, we get report ons during the day. So my definition of leadership is that people will actually follow. <laughs> so I make sure that uh, the, the leadership, not only from me personally, but from our whole team is a collaborative effort. And that our whole team is, is marching in the same direction. Uh, we'll, we'll, we all uh, are rolling up our sleeves and making sure we're getting the job done that has to get done. Yeah, um, it sounds like it, with such a rather robust portfolio that's really uh, essential to the economy and, and livelihood of this country. What are some of the challenges you face in your current role, and have you sought to dr- address those challenges? Well, um, at first, uh, when I, I, I got this position um, as the director of the Weather Service in February 2013, the challenge was, um, you know, we were coming off uh, uh, some budget irregularities, or uh, let's just uh, put it that way. We, so we had, we had an infrastructure from our budget uh, our budget structure, our, um, our headquarters organization structure, which was not mapped into our budget categories at the time, and a governance. How are we going to actually plan you know, our budget? How are we going to plan uh, the activities? How are we going to prioritize? And then how are we going to execute that? And budget planning, by the way, is a three-year cycle. It's not just, uh, you know, what are we going to do next month? It's, it's, it's the whole th- uh, three years out. How are we going to do that? Right? So we had to map all that out with the idea of supporting our current services, our current mission. You know, we have to observe, we have to provide, we have to forecast, uh, we have to interact with our partners uh, to ensure uh, you know, that we're actually out there saving lives and property. So we, we just needed to get that done, and then now we have that, and that's the way we move forward. So you know, that's sort of a flavor of what we're doing. So what would you say has been the biggest surprise or aha moment? Well, the biggest surprise is um, I had had experience within the corporate uh, board of the, uh, of the Weather Service and the, the previous directors. But the biggest surprise uh, to me was just how fragile our infrastructure was. Sure. The system infrastructure, the, the people, I, I, I already knew about, you know, and felt the dedication of our workforce and and their um, deep, deep uh, feelings about making it work to serve uh, the people and to meet the, and, and to literally meet the mission. But when I stepped up and saw the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the nature and the status of the forecast offices out there, the leaky roofs, uh, landlords that were no longer interested in supporting the building, that there were things that we had to do out there, the, the HVACs needed to be replaced. I mean, you know, just some fundamental uh, stuff that, you know, doesn't necessarily make the headlines, uh, but you have to be able to house your workforce and house the infrastructure for making a forecast happen. And quite frankly, um, that was in really bad shape. So we knew we had to focus on certain areas to build up. Louis, when you talk about um, your career, you ran the centers before you take, took over as director. I was wondering, what makes an effective leader, and what, what has formed and shaped your leadership style? I came out of the University of Wisconsin, gung-ho about the research 
aspect of uh, meteorology, and it was during an era where there was a lot of research going on across the entire spectrum of the field. I did work in it on larger scale dynamics uh, for things like jets and, and, and storm systems, and then brought it down to smaller scale uh, aspects, especially in the rapid time aspect of how these things develop. Being at Wisconsin in the late 60s and 70s, I was very fortunate to be able to interact with uh, uh, Vern Sumi, who was the father of the meteorological satellites, and I got to see firsthand um, how these satellites uh, were working then, what was envisioned in terms of geostationary and lower Earth orbiting satellites, what you could do with this data if you could get it in real time, all the time. Uh, the magnitude of that engineering problem just wasn't up in space, but what happened on the ground uh, for timeliness. I came out of that university with that understanding that it wasn't just the research and, and the visualization of satellites, but what it really meant to access that data and to use that data in models and in forecasting. I got uh, my first research position was in NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and I hammered home on that point. A lot of research in meteorology, but also uh, was fortunate to be the demonstration scientist for the Vizor Atmospheric Sounder, which was the first geostationary sounder in space that came out of the University of Wisconsin. But I, got re I, I was always interested in how this research, how this data could be used in operations. And it was James Hoke who, who said to me, I started writing uh, some papers, uh, giving some conference and he came up to me after one of these talks and said, Louie, you know, if you want to write about R2O, maybe you ought to understand O, what, what operations really is. And I said, well, you know, he's got a point. So a position opened up in the Weather Service and took it in 1989, became the head of the uh, Meteorological Operations Division. The point is that I never looked back. Um, I still write. I still do review papers. I'm, I've worked on papers on some of the things we've done since 2013 with... Uh, co-author John Tenhove, um, but it's the operational aspect captured me and making that work, making everything work in real time all the time and actually getting the information to uh, the citizens and, and decision, uh, decision makers and uh, across the whole spectrum of government and public safety has always been a driver. What is the strategic vision of the National Weather Service? We'll explore this question and so much more with Dr. Louis Uccellini, Director of the National Weather Service, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Louis Uccellini, Director of the National Weather Service. My co-host today from IBM is Alan Heath. Uh, so, Doctor, um, would you, I understand, you, you just uh, updated your strategic plan for the National Weather Service. Could you briefly outline for us uh, your strategic vision and, more importantly, your priorities? So, the, um, the strategic vision um, for the National Weather Service uh, remains intact 
which is to build a weather-ready nation, where the, the communities are ready and responsive and therefore resilient to extreme weather, water, and climate events. We updated the strategic plan. Uh, we made sure that uh, we embrace that same goal today because we're making progress, but we're not there yet. Um, in order to uh, build a weather-ready nation, we recognize that providing the weather, water, and climate information and, and forecasts to the general public and to decision makers is not enough. That, you know, what we have stated in our mission statement. This strategic plan is really, in, in certain sense, directed at our workforce, that they have to evolve um, how they work and what they have to bring to the table every day in terms of physical science and now an increasing understanding of social science and decision-making and understanding how our partners in the emergency management community at the federal, state, and local levels, especially at the local levels where most of these decisions are made, and how we then couch our products and services and work with them as a true partner. Basically, that's the crux of how the strategic plan is, is sort of directed at our workforce. It, it takes an infrastructure, it takes science and technology to make that work with greater accuracy and make the whole system work with more reliability because you got to be there on time all the time. And, and then the last component or another component of this is that we can't do this alone. So we have to work with our partners um, to um, you know, uh, in, include all of these partners uh, in everything we're doing. And, and that in itself is a major task. It, it's, it's working, and it's certainly a willingness amongst our partners and, um, across that whole spectrum that I just defined. You just mentioned when you discussed the partners, a lot of things that kind of hint at some of the key trends that are changing, some of the things that are changing. Um, do you have anything else that – what other trends are impacted your approach? So, so one of the major motivating factors for uh, bringing a sense of urgency to this change is that um, this country and, in fact, the globe is becoming increasing, increasingly vulnerable to extreme weather, water, and climate events. This is due to a, a number of factors. The population is increasing. The population is increasing in vulnerable areas. We've got more people living along the coast that are hurricane-prone now uh, than, than 30 years ago. Uh, we have uh, sea level rise along the coast, uh, which means you have more regular flooding going on. It's based right on a tidal cycle. There's evidence that uh, the rainfall uh, events are becoming more extreme. There are physical factors which lend itself to that statement about increased vulnerability. So to make... Uh, a community ready, responsive, and resilient takes on a certain, a higher degree of urgency. The last thing I'll just note is the, um, the billion-dollar events that are happening in this country, uh, which are reported on, um, uh, on an annual basis. We're having dozens of uh, billion-dollar events occurring in this country over an annual basis. This is driven a whole um, effort uh, to, uh, for us to improve our seasonal forecasts. So the whole, that whole spectrum is at play here uh, to be, for a, for, from a, a national uh, perspective of ready, responsive, resilient, 
all of those factors are in play. So, so Louis, along those lines then, to, because of these external forces, what's your criteria or definition of a weather-ready nation? I mean, where are you trying to get us to be prepared? We're working with, you know, with that sense of urgency in partnership with other federal agencies. Uh, we embed, we are invited to embed in their space. They come into our space episodically, I think in FEMA, for example. Uh, we're also doing this at the state and county and local levels, the same. We're, we're inviting it to emergency operations centers now across the country. Um, uh, we practice, we practice, we practice, right? Uh, we, we're here at a conference uh, this week in Washington, D.C. with um, uh, our partners in the private sector, for example, uh, uh, going over topics just like this. We're working with the universities, training the, uh, the future workforce, that it's not just physical science anymore. We're, we're alerting them to the fact that, that uh, the job's not going to end with the forecast and warning, that the modeling is, is uh, advancing in ways that now involves what we call ensemble models, not just a single model, that we got to account for the entire Earth system, how the ocean interacts with the atmosphere, how the land interacts with the atmosphere, the cryosphere, the ice. They, they have to think in terms of the entire Earth system, not just the atmosphere, to make predictions uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine days in advance where the decision process is being set up in advance of one of these extreme events. So all of the above. Um, it's you know that we're focused on. So, so speaking of which, as you try to get provide those uh, more precise forecasts, early warning for for the uh, citizens, how, how does that tie into your impact based decision support services? Well, the impact based decision support services is built off the same uh, concept of having accurate forecasts provided on a timely mm -hmm. basis, and we're talking forecasts now across the whole spectrum of of uh, the Earth System Sciences. The Weather Act of 2017 and now updated in 2019, uh, that we are to work with the federal, state, local, and tribal nations. And what that means is that to understand what their decision process is, to understand what they need to make decisions seven, six, five, four, three, two, one day in advance. So it's a, it's a tick-tock that right. basically gets them prepared to move, and then as, it, as you approach an event and it really looks like it is going to happen, they then take steps, and so there are key decision points and all that. The only way to understand what they do is that you have to be at their tabletop exercises. You have to practice with them. Uh, you just can't show up the, the three hours before the event and say, okay, I'm here. What do you need, right? You have to know what they need. You have to prepare yourself for what they need. You have to communicate the uncertainty because we can't give them a perfect forecast. It's the one thing we can guarantee them is that we can't give them a perfect forecast. So the longer out in time that they need to make a decision, the, the less accuracy the forecast is going to have. So how do you convey the uncertainty of that for the decisions that they have to make? So it's that practice, practice, practice. You build a trusted relationship by this process, and that relationship flows both ways. And so when a big event comes up and they're looking at you right in the eye or looking at the forecast so that they now have come to trust and that forecaster says, this is gonna be the big one, 
right? This is going to be the storm that hits this community. This is the storm like in Taylorville, uh, Illinois, on December 1st of the past year. This is a uh, likely tornadic outbreak that could affect your Christmas parade at 5 o'clock that Saturday evening. So that with that trusted relationship, even before the storm is forming, but the conditions are getting ripe for this and the likelihood that something could happen, they don't want people coming. Yeah. They want, so that, that's a decision to cancel a major event for that town at noon or 1 o'clock. And the tornado ripped the block. When the tornado did occur, it was an F3 or, uh, or an F2 to an F3, moved right within a block of where those people were. And we've got testimonials from the local officials that undoubtedly we saved lives, right? So that happens with that kind of, uh, that's the IDSS connecting us to the decision-making. How is the National Weather Service using technology and innovation to meet its mission? We'll ask its director, Dr. Louis Uccellini, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Louis Uccellini, Director of the National Weather Service. My co-host today from IBM is Alan Heath. So, uh, Doctor, I'd like to transition to your innovation efforts. And uh, what I mean by that is how are you – what are you doing to increase the use and application of supercomputing? And how does, uh, how does advanced modeling factor into your innovation agenda? Okay. So, the um, – uh, in terms of um, forecasting – uh, the weather. Over, over the last 50, 60, 70 years, we've gone through a revolutionary change in the way we make forecasts. So uh, coming out of World War II, uh, we were basically forecasting on what we call an analog technique. Um, this is the way systems op- uh, moved um, either up the coast or out the sea. So the next system that comes in, that's what's going to happen, basically. And, you know, uh, there was some major forecast busts because of something like that. What happened after World War II um, um, was to build off some research that was done actually during uh, the first part of the 20th century up until World War II was, <clears throat> can we formulate the equations that we base the atmospheric dynamics on uh, in such a way that we could actually step forward with those equations and predict from a mathematical uh, perspective, uh, physics perspective, not an analog 
experience perspective. Uh, that became the basis of what we now call numerical modeling. And that started um, uh, with uh, von Neumann coming out of the Manhattan Project, rebuilding a computer, and then looking for an application, basically, um, uh, connected with Jewel Charney and others who were uh, uh, providing analytic uh, systems of equations that were simplified, um, and then with a, a bit more effort could actually be mapped into these new computers, uh, fast-forward uh, computers, as uh, they were called, show that there are, with simple two-layer models, that you could actually predict what we would look at as a, as a, uh, a developing storm. Now, the great thing about that first effort in the early 50s was that we could show that the mathematical basis worked um, in providing an evolution of an atmosphere that looked like a low pressure system. The bad news was it took two and a half years to do that. Um, they picked a November uh, 1950 storm that racked the East Coast up into the Ohio Valley. Um, and I think the phone calls were made to the uh, Reichel Durfer, who was the head of the Weather Bureau at the time. Hey, we got a we got a low predicted, but you know, it's two and a half years later. So, how do you make it work in real time? How do you pull? So, so the science, and that was ongoing. We actually defined the new new types of um, um, mathematical uh, numerical analysis. You know, because you get instabilities that form if the time step is too large. And all these things started emerging as issues that would get in the way of making this system work in real time, right? You, everyone want to go to larger time steps because then you had fewer calculations and you, could, you might have a chance of getting this done in real time. But if the time step's too large, your system blows up, right? So those kind of things were being worked. But the engineering, think about the engineering challenge. How do you get the data? to a computer sitting in Maryland uh, in real time? How do you ensure that that data will be brought to an analysis that the system of equations will not reject and actually step forward with in real time? And then how do you get the post-processed field out? We're not even talking to general public. How do you get it out to your forecasters in real time? So from 1950 to about the mid-80s and 90s, this was still an exercise in research operations because the operational community really didn't embrace the numerical models until the early to mid-80s. And even then, there was doubts that they didn't fully embrace it until the 90s. So this was a 30 to 40-year effort in science, also engineering. So now... We look at our numerical modeling enterprise, you know, news stories on the European model versus the American model, which is not helpful, by the way, in the sense that if we're talking consistently, our forecasters use all the models from around the globe, not just our, the models that were developed here, but all the models to actually produce the forecasts that go out. But the fact is, the fact is, we didn't really embrace that as a fundamental component of our forecast process until the mid-90s. I contend that the development of numerical modeling and its application in real time, all the time, was one of the intellectual achievements of the 20th century. No doubt about that. And it has now set the basis for our ability to predict 
and extended ranges out to weeks in advance and, and the whole climate prediction. It's, it's, that's more driven by boundary conditions rather than initial conditions. But the dynamics, the interaction, the Earth system science approach is similar. Uh, this is made possible by the advancements that were made in the 20th century. And, I, uh, and one last point here is that the atmospheric community was basically on its own. The rest of the science community, the physics and the mathematical folks, the, the, the purists, I would say, basically ostracized the meteorologists for doing this. Right? The ocean folks uh, stood on the sidelines for a while, watched what we were doing, others. So what's happening now is everybody involved in the Earth system science has got to have a model, got to have models. But there are folks in um, the medical community that are interested in now, you know, are they, can we predict health vectors that have a correlation to uh, weather and, and you know, uh, natural types of parameters. Uh, the National Ocean Service is, is predicting harmful algae bloom, hypoxia and vibrio outbreaks along coastal domains. Or we have, we have a uh, National Ocean Service has, this, uh, through their modeling efforts and working with the research component of NOAA, has an operational system for Lake Erie that that predictive information actually passes through our forecast offices to get hooked up with the same users that look at severe weather outbreaks and, and others. So, so it's expanding into other areas where people watched us for 50 yeah. years. And, and that development yeah. wouldn't have been possible without supercomputing? Or? Yeah, so today there are three components of this. You gotta have a global observing system, you global observing system, even for local forecasts. You have to have that. You have to have the science of data assimilation to use those observations and modeling combined. And you can only make this work if you have the supercomputers that can handle this and um, at the resolutions that are needed. So we've always pushed the envelope on the supercomputers. We were one of the major drivers for supercomputers in the 50s and 60s. So code breaking was probably one of the other ones. But we were one of the major drivers for, for that. And again, well, only as strong as the weakest component of those those three. Yep. So, so that the modeling that you invested in, and, and as you said, made a dramatic difference in, in the community, and the data that you're starting to collect and use with those models, touch touch again on the additional services and products that you see are coming forward because of that breakthrough or that advancement. Um, well, it's the... What's coming out of these models now um, can be used by other communities for research. And by the way, advancing this is uh, we have to work in partnership. Our partnerships are not just on the back end of our process. We're working much more collaboratively with the larger research community uh, in the United States and around the globe, actually, to advance, uh, advance the model. So we have to make it available for ongoing research needs, because if there is research done with our models, we can factor the advance. Do you do faster. that research just within federal, or do you use federal and your, your uh, ecosystem? There is research uh, within the academic community. Uh, there's research within other federal labs. There's, uh, there are private sector firms doing research now that we want to tap into. So this is a, this is a large domain space for, for what we need. But Getting the information from the models and, and extracting the useful information, whether it's by us or by other private sector firms, uh, is is um, being used now in uh, business. To, uh, you know, like I, I mentioned, the private sector in, uh, in the United States, business to business, uh, 
you know, there, there are businesses in the retail industry that uh, use information in the weather, water, climate domain, energy, uh, recreation, uh, the infrastructure management, agriculture, just what goes on on Wall Street, uh, the reinsurance industry. Um, um, I mean, all of the above. I don't, uh, there are people who said that there, every business uh, needs uh, this information for their uh, short-term and long-term planning. And if they don't know that, they'll go out of business. I've actually heard uh, individuals state that. So uh, we're in a whole different era now where folks are not just looking at the information we're providing as a conversation piece, but as an important element in their decision process. And I should note that one of the reasons um, we, um, uh, one thing I haven't mentioned yet, is think about the world aviation industry and what that meant for what we do. The first global observing network that was established after World War II was the Radiostone network that we used to drive our models. That network was put in place after World War II to support the growing global uh, aviation industry and because they needed that wind information to operate it, but they also needed the information for, for safety reasons. We built off of uh, a network of data to enhance our forecast capabilities and ultimately to drive the first numerical models was actually put in place to help support the aviation industry. So we got this symbiotic relationship. And I'd, like to stand, I'd like to stay on that in terms of research and operation. And you know, to pick up on what you just said before Alan talks about water, is what's a good balance for the National Weather Service between conducting research and maintaining operations? Well, the balance is influenced by how, what we feel we need to do in-house and, and what we can do uh, and, and, and leveraging the partnership. So if you think in terms of research as basic research and applied research, uh, we're relying on other agencies and other components of NOAA, Office of uh, uh, Atmospheric, uh, Ocean and Atmospheric Research, um, which is within NOAA. Uh, they do uh, basic, they have basic research components, but they have an increasingly large portfolio in applied research that's relevant to what we need. But there are other agencies, NSF, you know, immediately comes to mind, NASA, DOE, uh, Department of Energy, uh, USGS in the water domain. Uh, we rely heavily on their research in the, in, the, in the water domain. As their research becomes increasingly relevant to our needs, it, obviously, we have a greater incentive to work with them. So what we focus our research component, we have, we have about 12% of our budget in science and technology integration, is to provide a catch's mitt for this research to not only receive it, but accelerate the transfer, accelerate the assessments, accelerate the operational implementation, which we do. We don't want to put that on the research community. So one of the expressions that I coined early on is that if you want to accelerate research to operations, we need to support operations to research. The, the more that the research community is using our data, using our, our models, our model infrastructure, the faster we can move that research into operations. And quite frankly, the Europeans are very good at doing that. The United States, it's been a struggle, and it's been a struggle on both sides of the ledger, not just in the research world, but also in our world. So we're working very hard. Uh, in fact, that's one of the, I think, the major changes that's been occurring over the last five to 10 years is to ensure that uh, even today, as we develop this um, new EPIC, what we call the EPIC uh, program, that we situate ourselves uh, within a research uh, community 
to provide that model data, provide the infrastructure so that the research that's being done on the physics of the model, on the data assimilation of the model, on the post-processing of the model is actually being worked off of our infrastructure. So as those advances are made, we can more readily move them into, uh, into operations. And if you can cut two, three, four years off, uh, off of uh, that process, which is uh, what we've uh, been working to do, obviously that's a greater benefit to the money that's being spent on the research. You're not wasting that resource over a period of time. We're there, we're actively engaged, we're equal partners with the research community in moving this forward into operations. Doctor, I, I want to I stay, I want to talk specifically about the water model. Right? Earlier you talked about how water can really impact our community, right? Too much water, too little water, or poor quality water. What's the investments or efforts that you're putting into improving your water model? So um, the water model uh, is, is uh, an interesting example of, uh, and a good example of working with the research community. It's, so there's a couple of things were going on in the, in the world of hydrology um, in, in the operational arena that, you know, historically um, the flood forecasts would be issued after the rainfall affected an area, as the snow was melting, an estimate of the snow melt. And then the flood, uh, um, you know, the, the height of the flood. And the flood could be ongoing at that point, right? But if you want to be ready, responsive, and increase the resilience, again, you want this lead time. So one of the ways of getting the lead time is to use the quantitative precipitation forecast from the meteorological community. So now you've got a, a merger point between two scientific disciplines, you know, water in the atmosphere and water in the ground. And they act differently. There's different physical laws that you have to, you have to deal with uh, uh, to make that work. That's one aspect of bringing this together. Do you spend 20, 30, 40 years uh, trying to build a model like we did in the atmospheric community, or are people going to have the patience for that in this new era of rapid change? And the answer is no. Well, it turns out that the research community, uh, writ large within hydrology, was going into uh, a modeling uh, area that involved, you know, basically, I would say, more of an initial value problem that could account for the quantitative precipitation forecast. But more importantly, instead of predicting at points, these bulk models that were used uh, and are still being used, that they could predict through the entire river stream. Today, uh, well, let's say over the past uh, three, four years, we've actually accessed a numeric model that, that was developed out at the National Centers for Atmospheric Research. A lot of research uh, resources were put into that model. Gives us uh, predictions for 2.7 million river streams in the United States versus 4,000 points that we were forecasting for. And it's not only just the height of the water, and therefore it's, it's you know, when it overtops its banks, where is it going to go? It's the river flow. It's the rate of flow, which is very crucial for uh, reacting to or responding to and trying to mitigate the impact of a flood. It's not just the height, it's the flow. It's doing both. And quite frankly, um, we're spinning that up. Uh, mapping becomes a big deal. How do you map that to street level is not an easy task. Well, we had a sense of urgency with that with Harvey. Right? We're going along implementing, testing, assessing, and then Harvey comes along and we're predicting over 50 inches of rain. And the local community is saying, well, well, it's going to be a massive flood. They wanted to know not only where is it going to flood, where is it not going to flood? And, and what we did was working both systems, the points 
and the new uh, we were able to for Houston and then Beaumont and and Alice uh, Springs Texas that those flood forecasts were extremely important uh, for getting the first responders to getting uh, the safety officials pre-positioning assets on where it was not going to flood so the big trucks were pre-positioned in Houston that was also done in Beaumont and other you know for and it worked we were amazed that we were actually predicting over 50 inches of rain, and we were amazed that it verified. It had never been done before. But the fact is, it forced uh, the folks down at the water center and, and the river forecast center that serves uh, Texas and that whole area to work together to get this done and get information uh, to, uh, to public safety officials. And now that's the fact that it worked for Houston but there's a lot more to do. It's actually become an agency goal for the Department of Commerce. Yeah, and I want to talk about working together because throughout this conversation, you've, you've, you've introduced us to the strategic vision, the way you operate. Um, but what I'd like to talk about is kind of rope a couple of questions together. And that is how have, since you've taken over, how have you sort of reorganized the National Weather Service to make sure you have the right people in the right places at the, at the right spots with the right expertise? Because you must be doing something right because as I understand it, you rank among one of the highest agencies in employee motivation and dedication to missions. So what's going on in that area? So um, a couple of things that we had to do um, – to make this work because you can see all the disciplines that we're working with within the physical sciences and then within government decision aspects. There has to be a greater sense of collaboration. So we were dealing with fundamental cultural issues uh, within a, a individual offices. We came out of a very successful modernization in the, um, the last part of the last century. By all measures, the modernization associated restructuring of National Weather Service was declared a success, brought us the radars, brought us the green meteorologists, brought us a distributed infrastructure and offices that actually would serve the mission, um, automated surface observing systems, uh, better models, the whole thing. We got all that. The forecasters, they would release something from an office that was generated in that office. That was their driver. Uh, we got centers. We've got regional forecast offices. We got, look, they got to work together. And it's not just coordination. It's collaboration. It's treating each other in these various components of the Weather Service as an equal partner, um, as an important resource to get your job done, to get that information to your local decision makers. You can look over your shoulders to your centers and to your regional offices as collaborators, not as competitors. We're all trying to get with one Weather Service, one forecast that people can respond to. So that change was important, extremely important. And this notion that you had to provide IDSS not only to meet a strategic goal, but to actually meet your mission. I say today that the workforce has embraced this. It's amazing the extent to which they've uh, embraced this, and they make it work every day. It's really beautiful to watch, to tell you the truth. How does the National Weather Service collaborate with its international colleagues? We'll explore this question and so much more with Dr. Louis Unciolini director of the National Weather Service, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. 
Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. What are some of the most significant challenges facing the African continent? What is the mission of the Ellicott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University? How is it developing the next generation of international leaders? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Ambassador Ruben Brigady, Dean of the Ellicott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University, next week on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Louis Uccellini, Director of the National Weather Service. My co-host today from IBM is Alan Heath. Louis, tell, tell us a little bit more about your reorganization of NWS. So um, the, the field structure um, of local, regional, and national presence was actually, when I came and got this position, I felt very comfortable with that we were actually uh, in a right area with respect to that. But the budget planning process, the budget execution, the management of our resources that are directed towards that field structure was where the problem was. To build a weather-ready nation to realize our mission, I felt very strongly that we had to deal with the core issues of budget acquisition, budget management, program management and ensuring that we were directing our resources to the right places of the organization, our workforce especially, that um, would allow us to meet the goals and to uh, meet our mission every day. And that came right back at headquarters. So when I arrived, and I was aware of this because I was part of a corporate board before I got this job, you know, I could see we had 25 budget categories that nobody knew how they even got wow. there how they interplayed with each other. Two of those categories um, was uh, local uh, warnings and forecasts and central forecast guidance. So two of those categories had the word forecast in it. Uh, it took 71% of the budget, had about almost 90% of the FTEs. Uh, there were folks um, you know, in the organization above us and up on a hill that thought, those were all forecasters. That 70% of our budget was on forecasting. But everything was in those budget those two budget categories. I, I use the expression, everything but the kitchen sink. So it's a real lack of visibility of what was in there. But more importantly, there was a lot of confusion amongst the category. And during fiscal years, there'd be money shifted from one to the other, which is not allowed, right? You can't do that. So when I came in, uh, yeah, I felt very strongly that, and I actually said this one time with one of the budget officials, uh, young budget officials in the National Weather Service when I was leading a program for, uh, for NOAA to try to do a cross-cut for NOAA, that we needed to simplify the budget structure that mapped our functions. And uh, uh, this individual, who I will not name, said, well, someday, son, when you're the head of the Weather Service, maybe you can do that, but we're not <laughs> doing that now, right? So what I was driving towards was... I, I defined the forecast process for you. Observation, central processing, analyze forecast support as a total, with support being our link to, the, to a decision makers, and, and then dissemination. And then, so that's our forecast process. 
and then you've got to fix it, you've got to improve it, you've got to replace components, whatever. That's science and technology integration. And then you've got to house it facilities. So today we have six budget categories. I can tell you the priorities in each one. Um, I can tell you how we plan for the three-year budget cycle. What comes out of those plans from the appropriation is what drives then the action for the current fiscal year, what the priorities are, what the schedules are, what the budget allocations are within the, within the elements within that. We no longer are offloading observation stuff to map in or, or the central computer to map in to analyze forecast support. We can defend the 44% of the budget that's actually the analyzed forecast. Not the 71%, but the 44%. We can defend that, we can articulate, we can show how the, the value proposition and how the money's being spent. Right. We couldn't do that before. So that was extremely important. We also now have six offices, right? We have the Office of Observations, the Office of Central Processing, the AFSO, the Office of... Uh, uh, the, the Analyzed Forecast Support Office, Office of Dissemination, STI Office, and Office of Facilities. So we have a one-to-one -one match of the administrative offices with the budget category. So we have responsibilities for budget planning and budget execution uh, that are mapped to agency goals, right, um, that now operate every day. So that is important because we now have the trust of our stakeholders, but it's also important because this is all directed towards making the field structure work. It's all directed with requirements set by analyzed forecast support. So doctors, one thing I wanted to follow up on is the, you mentioned the backbone of the work that you do is your satellites. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So what we found um, as we were developing the numerical models uh, and uh, as a fundamental part of our forecast process and, 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 and that the global observing network was, was one of the three major components of that entire system, the way that we make that global observing system work, of course, is with various observing system. But the dominant observing system that allowed us and, and allows us to get a global view of the key parameters, the moisture, temperature, and winds, um, and, the, and the surface temperatures, is this global satellite uh, network. So the advancements that not only the United States have made in, in the, uh, uh, both the geostationary satellites and the lower Earth orbiters, uh, um, but also Europe and, and Asia uh, now is extremely important um, component of our total observing system that continues to provide the data that allows us to advance our forecasts. Um, now out to uh, a week in advance for extreme events, for example. So um, it's, like I, I, I emphasize, it's not just the models, it's not just the computers. We got to focus also on observations. And where the weather service is in tremendous partnership with the satellite services uh, within NOAA and NASA, but also uh, relying on the satellite data from around the globe. So um, it's, it's quite an engineering feat when you think about the satellite data, the institute data, getting that to us in real time, running it on our models, getting models run out to 16 days in advance every six hours so we can pull together ensembles. All this is driven by a global observing system that 
satellite uh, information is playing an increasingly important role for. But before we go, I just one last question. I always ask my uh, guests this question. What advice would you have someone who is thinking about a career in public service? My advice to the folks uh, who have that interest and have that passion for public service is follow your dream and, and where you want to take that. Uh, there's many aspects of public service, whether it's in the science arena, whether it's uh, direct delivery of day-to-day services, whether it's a combination of both. Uh, um, there's, there's, there's so many aspects of public service. People develop a passion for what they do. I, I see folks in public service um, uh, have that same passion as I see in the meteorological community. Um, there are things that get in the way uh, of sustaining that passion at times. Um, you know, public service depends on uh, public budgets. And, and with that, uh, people will always want to know that they're getting the value for their money that they're putting into that and, and what people are working on is uh, uh, relevant or directly uh, uh, applicable to their needs. So you always, you always have that challenge. Uh, I feel like we're fortunate being in a weather service that we can show that on a day-to-day basis. And sometimes, um, you know, like I said, we, uh, I can guarantee you we'll make a perfect forecast. Sometimes they're less perfect than others. And, you know, but I assure folks we are always assessing cases to learn from mistakes. I see that in other areas so, as well. So the fact is, um, I would just, if you, if you have a passion for public service, follow your dreams and, uh, and make it work. Well, doctor, thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us today. But more importantly, Alan and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, I'm, I'm sitting here representing a workforce uh, that has been measured every which way out as the most dedicated public servants, uh, committed to the mission, and committed to that, that public service. So um, I feel uh, like a proud uh, uh, director uh, uh, of this workforce, and we're certainly making a difference today. Yes, you are. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Louis Uccellini, Assistant Administrator for Weather Services at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and Director of the National Weather Service. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What are some of the most significant challenges facing the African continent? What is the mission of the Ellicott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University? How is it developing the next generation of international leaders? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Ambassador Ruben Brigady, Dean of the Ellicott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University, next week on the Business of Government Hour. 